Welcome everyone to Ask Anarchan. This is a podcast series where we sit down with our experts to talk about an aspect of the work that they do here with us at Natural Resources Canada. Today, I'll be talking to a scientist who traveled to the north on a Canadian Coast Guard icebreaker to map the Arctic Ocean floor. For those of you who are new to the show, we call this series Ask Anarchan because we want to hear from you. The purpose of the show is to share with you not only the type of science that we do, but also why we do it. So, at the end of the episode, if you have any questions on this topic, head to Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag AskAnarchan. Our expert will do his or her best to answer all relevant questions. Sounds good? Okay, let's do it. My guest today is Dr. David Mosher. David is a research scientist who took part in several expeditions where the goal was to collect data to map out the Arctic Ocean floor. Every country in the world has sovereign rights over the marine resources found within 200 nautical miles from their borders. According to an international treaty, a country could potentially have sovereign rights over the seabed and the resources found beneath the seabed over a larger area if their continental shelf extend beyond those 200 nautical miles. As temperatures increase and permanent ice recedes in the Arctic Ocean, countries like Canada, Russia, Denmark, and the U.S. could access larger regions of the Arctic for economic exploitation. The information collected by David and his team is integral to the development of documents that Canada will soon submit to the United Nations to establish the outer limits of Canada's continental shelf in the Arctic Ocean. David is here to tell us about his personal experiences during these expeditions. David, thank you for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me on. Let's set the stage first to understand why you were conducting this research, and then we'll get into the trips themselves. Can you start by telling us a little bit about this international treaty? What is Canada's involvement and where we're at in the process? Yeah, sure. It's uh, it's a big topic. I'll try to focus on exactly uh, what, what our role is in it. So UNCLOS is the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea, and, and it's a it's a big document. It, it, it's really the constitution of the sea, um, and, and there are many, many aspects to it. But one that is very specific to allowing coastal states to establish uh, extended continental shelves, it's called, is, is an article called Article 76. And it is specific um, to establishing basically the outer limits of a coastal state. So when a country signs the treaty, they automatically have 200 nautical miles, which we often refer to as the exclusive economic zone. And I think most people are familiar with that concept. But a coastal state can actually extend beyond 200 nautical miles to have sovereign rights over the uh, the seabed and what's under the seabed. So the natural resources uh, on the seabed and below the seabed, uh, if they meet certain geological and, and uh, bathymetric conditions. And so in order to establish this extended continental shelf, we needed to go out and survey the seafloor and what's underneath the seafloor. David, before you continue, can you explain a little bit, like, what is a continental shelf? I have trouble kind of envisioning it. Well, that's actually a very good question because there's a geological continental shelf and there's a legal continental shelf, and uh, they're quite different. Uh, the, the continental shelf, uh, as we understand it in geology, and, and most, most lay people, I think, understand that, the shelf is the, is the broad, flat platform that extends out from a, a coastline. So we can think about the extensive Grand Banks, for example, um, 
as, as a, a really good example of what a continental shelf is. So it's typically shallow water, less than 200 meters or so. And then it comes to a point where it drops off to the deep ocean at the shelf break. And then you have the slope and the deep ocean floor way out in the middle of the ocean, the abyssal plains and so on. And so that's a geological continental shelf. It's that, that platform, the shallow water platform that, that dips at a very, very low angle, almost flat and horizontal. Whereas a legal continental shelf actually can in- incorporate both the shelf and the slope and even parts of the, the deep ocean floor. So it, it's, a different, it's a different entity entirely. And so we have to be careful of your language when you're referring to continental shelf in this context. Okay, that kind of gives us a, an overview so we can picture it in our, in our minds. So what is Canada's involvement? What are we doing right now? Are we putting together information for a claim? Yeah, that's right. In the Atlantic, uh, we made a submission to the UN. Uh, there's a UN body called the Commission uh, for the Limits of the Continental Shelf. And I actually serve now as a commissioner on that commission. But uh, Coastal State makes a submission with proposing their outer limits. And this body, this UN body, reviews that and works with the Coastal State on establishing what those uh, outer limits might be. And so you have to as I've mentioned previously, about uh, the bathymetry and the geology. So you make your case based on these scientific bodies of evidence, largely. And then the, the commission reviews it and works with the coastal state. So Canada submitted for the Atlantic back in 2013. Canada ratified the treaty in 2003, and then we submitted for the Atlantic in 2013. And now we're, we're in the final stages of preparing our submission for the Arctic. And the Pacific doesn't have an opportunity for an extended continental shelf on our Pacific margin because it doesn't meet the, the criteria, the, the bathymetric criteria, which are set up to allow that. So, so it's only in the Arctic and the Atlantic. In the Atlantic, it was approximately 1.2 million square kilometers of additional territory that Canada can potentially uh, have sovereign rights over. And in the Arctic, it's yet to be determined, but probably not on that magnitude, but pretty close. When are we going to have a response back from the UN regarding this claim? Uh, Another good question. Sadly, it's a long time frame. There are currently more than 80 submissions uh, with this body at the UN, and about 30 now have recommendations, and the body has been in place to review recommendations for 20 years. So it's a slow process, and so it may be another 6 to 10 years for the Atlantic submission, and then the Arctic submission, where it's not even filed yet, uh, will be somewhat longer, obviously. So it's long time frame. Nonetheless, the treaty ha- give, it gives the coastal state those rights, even though they're not being used or, or established formally. So Canada has the right to an extended continental shelf and has the sovereign rights over the seabed uh, and what's under the seabed, even regardless of the fact that we haven't established the formal boundaries. So in essence, we're just formalizing it through the UN body and uh, eventually it'll be established in a formal and, and static manner. But in the meantime, we still have rights to, to, to explore in those regions. 
Let's talk about the Arctic expeditions themselves. How many trips to the mm -hmm. Arctic Ocean have you done yourself and what was your role? So we uh, had expeditions since 2007 to 2011 each year and then in 2014, 15 and 16 and I was chief scientist on four of those missions. 2009, 10, and 11, and then again in 14. And then I helped plan the ones for 15 and 16. So, uh, so I participated actively as chief scientist on four of those missions. And those were two ship missions. So uh, three of those were with the US and their, uh, their flagship icebreaker called the Healy. And uh, the Canadian icebreaker, our flagship icebreaker, the Louis Saint Laurent. How far north did you go? Did you actually make it all the way to the North Pole? Did you go past the North Pole? Yeah, so uh, all of the work was quite far north, anywhere from you know the Beaufort margin in the south all the way to the North Pole. Uh, we only went to the North Pole one, uh, well, two years, 2014 and well, 20, uh, 2014, 15, and 16. So initially, most of our work was focused above the north of the Canadian margin which is a little bit south of the North Pole. But we were close to the North Pole even in 2011. Um, we were very close, within a few hundred kilometers. But in 2014, we took two Canadian icebreakers, the Terry Fox and the Louis Saint Laurent, and went all the way to the North Pole. And then uh, that was duplicated again in 2015. And then in 2016, we partnered with a Swedish icebreaker, the Odin, and so it was the Louis Saint Laurent and the Odin who, who went north and made it as far as the North Pole. So I guess when you go way up north, it's very remote in the Arctic Ocean. Is that why you uh, you go with an icebreaker from a different country, just for security reasons, or? Oh, multiple reasons. That's that's certainly uh, one of them. The the principal reason is when you are surveying, particularly uh, with what's called seismic reflection surveying, where you're towing systems behind the vessel, you cannot break ice and tow gear at the same time. So you have a lead icebreaker that actually breaks the ice in front of you, and then the surveying ship would follow behind uh, towing the equipment. And even with hull-mounted systems, like a multi-beam sonar, it's helpful to have a icebreaker in the lead uh, it certainly improves data quality immensely. So you can imagine when you're ice breaking, uh, not only is there a lot of noise uh, and, and a lot of uh, relatively violent motion to the ship, but there's also a lot of backing and ramming uh, forward to break ice, especially when it's particularly heavy. And so you certainly can't do that as you're towing gear behind the vessel. So uh, a big advantage to having two ships, uh, just from a practical point of view, and then, of course, it's certainly necessary uh, or, or a, a big value added to have uh, that security in case you did get stuck in ice to have a second icebreaker to come and help you or assist you out of the ice. That brings up an interesting point. How different is an Arctic expedition versus one in the Pacific or Atlantic Ocean? Well, it's, uh, it's quite different. Uh, neither are particularly easy, especially given weather conditions in the North Atlantic. But the, the big issue is, is of course, having to deal with the ice. And so that requires some specialized equipment and, and some modifications to existing technologies. 
certainly from a planning perspective, you're you're limited in the in the number of days you can spend there. The ice minimum is uh, is a, is in early September. You can survey with our icebreakers at least anywhere from probably early August to towards the end of September would be the restriction. But then it, you start to lose daylight in in early September, and by mid September you're working lots of time in in pure darkness, which is also difficult in in ice conditions. So there's quite a quite a bit of unique uh, challenges to surveying in the ice. That's for sure. Um, on the other hand, you don't have to contend with the weather and 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 high uh, high waves and so on. So so there are some other advantages as well. Let's talk about these unique challenges. The challenges that come with being on a vessel in the middle of the Arctic Ocean. Uh, there's always uh, some challenges. Uh, I think uh, any icebreaker, any vessel uh, has uh, has challenges in that regard. But uh, I would say the the most severe one for us. There, there were a couple of different ones. Probably the most severe one was uh, was we had to leave the ice because of the risk of losing the propeller. And we had to be uh, basically escorted out of the ice in that case. Uh, fortunately, we had pretty much done most of our surveying at that point in time. So we didn't lose too much uh, in the way of uh, survey time. But we made it out, and, and uh, the vessel eventually got home under its own power without uh, too much difficulty. And perhaps one of the biggest risks is medevacs. You know, if anything happens up there, you're a long, long way from any medical attention. And so I recall one time we had to leave the ice. It took about five days to steam towards Tuck Tuck before we could uh, drop off the injured party. And uh, so you lose a lot of survey time, and and it's a, a big risk uh, from that respect. So even though we have medical personnel on board, uh, it's always preferable and necessary to to get them out if the condition's serious at all. When you're facing a situation like this where you're in the middle of nowhere where you can only be accessed by another icebreaker, like what goes through your mind when you go through one of those mechanical failures or uh, medical emergencies? Truthfully, I, I, I don't think about it too much. <laughs> you know, I, I think it comes from years of experience of having confidence in the, in the ship's personnel uh, to know that they can get you out of most situations and or deal with most situations that are thrown at them. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's just a confidence in, in, the, in the ship's personnel and your own personnel that uh, you'll be able to deal with it. So I, I really don't think about it uh, too much. On the other hand, you know, you do plan for those types of things. So we did, we did carry a nurse and a doctor on board, of course, and we had uh, uh, appropriate medical equipment, and we improved that equipment over over the years that we surveyed to try and minimize that risk. So uh, I think you just good planning and then confidence in your in your team. Fair enough. What's the most incredible or unforgettable thing that you've ever experienced during one of those trips? Yeah, that's a tough question because there's so much. Uh, you know, the Arctic was literally unexplored, at least from the the, uh, the geological side of things. The seabed had had never been observed before because of this perennial sea ice. So we were in parts of the Arctic, really, that you know, man had never been before. And so all of that is so exciting. You know, it's, it's all discovery in its purest sense, uh, really frontier, uh, frontier type of uh, exploration. So that is always 
uh, exciting. I mean, that's, that's just incredibly memorable. On a personal side, I think observation of wildlife at those latitudes, like polar bears, is just an incredible thing. I mean, you know, when you see a polar bear out on the ice at 87, 88 degrees north, thousands of kilometers from, from any land, it just is awe-inspiring about how how incredibly uh, adapted those animals are to the to the Arctic environment. So, from a personal perspective, I think those are those are exciting moments. That sounds amazing. Are you planning any other Arctic expeditions? I don't have anything planned right now. Um, you know, our, our survey work for at least for the Law of the Sea program is complete now. So. Uh, there's nothing that I have in the books. I do have my name in with some foreign vessels to to uh, proposals that is to to do some further exploration, and we're always looking for opportunities to to augment our work. But it takes a lot of money, a lot of resources to to work up there. So you need a very dedicated program, and 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 so you need something like uh, this extended continental shelf program that has been able to support these kind of expeditions. It's not something you can you can do uh, without a lot of planning and a lot of funding. So nothing on the works right now, but I, I sure hope I get to go back because it, it really is an incredible experience. Well, I hope you get the chance as well. Thank you so much, David, for your time today. Oh, it's uh, been a great pleasure to speak with you, and thanks for your interest. So this is the end of the episode. But, like always, it doesn't mean that it's the end of our conversation. If you have any follow-up questions for David, get on Twitter and tweet at us using the hashtag AskNRCAN. Also, if you're interested in learning more about the scientific work that we do here at Natural Resources Canada, check out our online magazine called Simply Science. We have a ton of great content for you, including articles, videos, and previous episodes of this podcast. If you check out the podcast page, we'll have links available to any relevant information to learn more about the Arctic research that we do, as well as UNCLOSE. The best way to find Simply Science is either to Google it or click on the banner from our website at nrcan.gc.ca. And if you like this episode and you are listening to us on either Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or SoundCloud, please consider subscribing so that you can check out any previous or future episodes. I think that's it for us today. Thank you for listening. We look forward to hearing from you, and we'll see you next time.